We've been invited into a text. A text is probably not the right word. We've been invited into a story, a narrative. And it's got all the things a good story needs, doesn't it? Great heroics, handsome men who win the day. It's got romance, if we could call it that. And it's got a great enemy. Every story needs a great enemy, doesn't it? And David will have plenty of good enemies. But today is David's enemy number one, King Saul. He is to David what Darth Vader would be to Luke Skywalker. He's so important to this text and to this story because we need Saul to be the bad guy so David's the good guy, right? Isn't that how we tell this story so often? Isn't that how we enter it today? We have... David is good and Saul is bad. You remember the direct TV commercials with Rob Lowe? And Rob Lowe came out and cable Rob Lowe was creepy and ugly and weird. And he looked at the TV at the end and he says, don't be like cable me, get direct TV. <laughs> this is how we talk about David and Saul. Saul is really bad, David's good. 35 years in Sunday school has taught me this story. David is this Exemplary man with a few faults, but he's a great guy. And Saul is evil and wicked and bad. Let's not be like Saul. Let's be like David. In fact, it's all, what all of our children's curriculum seems to teach. But I wonder today if we could retell the story in a way that's a little different. That maybe we have missed a point. Winston Churchill is credited with saying the victors write history. What if Saul had killed David? He tried many times. If he had killed him off early on, which is what kings do, by the way, for those trying to usurp their power, would the story be different? On Palm Sunday, would the people have shouted, Hosanna to the son of Saul? Could he have sufficed as the one who passes on the story? Let's think about Saul's story for a moment. How bad is he really? Let's talk about Saul's story. He's out one day looking for his dad's donkey. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. He's an average, ordinary man, but he has this curse that some of you in the room has. He's really good looking. And he's tall. He has a stature about him that people are just drawn to. He didn't ask for this. It's just how he was born, and he's out doing his dad's job, looking for the donkeys, and he can't find them anywhere. And he wasn't looking for the man of God, but he bumps into that day, Samuel, the man of God. And God says through Samuel, this is my anointed one. And keep in mind, Saul never wanted the job. Saul didn't ask for the job. Saul was never out front campaigning for this spot. This was Samuel's idea, or God's idea, and Samuel's doing to anoint him. In fact, you'll remember Saul says this, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Saul didn't want the job. Saul didn't ask for the job. Saul was just giving the job. But now you're saying, but we remember his big sin. Let's talk about Saul's big sin for a moment. The one that lost him the kingdom. You ready for this? They're about to go to battle with the Philistines. And we're waiting on Samuel to show up to offer the sacrifices. The worship leader's late, more or less. And Saul does what any of us would have done. He's got to keep the confidence of the people. We're about to go to battle. He's a military leader here. What's he supposed to do? He offers the sacrifices. He's not trying to defy God or do the wrong thing. He's trying to keep the morale of the people. And that's the day that he loses God's favor as the king of Israel. For that, 
If you're having a church service and you ask someone to lead the opening prayer and they don't come and you say the prayer yourself and God says you've lost this church, you are done. That doesn't seem like a very big sin to me. And the more I talk about Saul's story, the more I start to empathize with him. I know he starts to look worse. But wouldn't you start to take a turn for the worse? Maybe you already have these tendencies toward manic depression and God says, you have lost my favor. What would you do? You'd probably lose it too. And so Saul starts this decline. He starts to get very insecure and self-conscious. And meanwhile, this arrogant little shepherd boy is coming along, stealing his thunder. And by the way, what do kings do in the ancient world to people who come along and take their power? They try to kill him. This is not uncommon for Saul. In fact, he's probably a lot nicer than many ancient Near Eastern kings of the day. He's at least befriending David to some extent. Meanwhile, David is in there befriending his son and his daughter. He's like a political player pulling together the people that he needs. He's this kind of arrogant shepherd boy. And Saul, meanwhile, is probably worried if I lose this kingdom to David, will he kill me and all of my family? Because that's also what kings do in the ancient world. So I have a little sympathy for Saul if I think about his story for a while. I start to feel kind of bad for him. I come from a family that has mental illness. Saul seems to have mental illness, and he's in a world that has no capacity for that. It's easy to feel sorry for him if we really think about it. Well, maybe we say, maybe David's just that great. Maybe Saul's not so bad. David is just that great of a man. <laughs> sure, he has faults, but he's brave. He's courageous. I don't like that we say he had his faults. Let's expose David's faults here for just a moment, if we could. What I want no one to do to me. But let's do it to David. He's not here <laughs> to argue with us. What is David's story? From early on, there's no other way to say this but to say David has a problem with women. He mistreats them. He uses them to his own advantage. He sees them as less than, again, unfortunately, common in the ancient world. But for David... He's got a real issue here. The story of Abigail, by the way. Let's think about this. If you don't believe in Scripture, if you're just an outside reader, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and therefore you're going to read the story of David, you read the story of this man who's out rounding up the support of people who looks like he's almost staging a rebellion against the King Saul of Israel, and you come across this guy, Nabal, who says, I'm not going to support what you're doing. And his wife gets scared that this guy's about to kill our whole family off. So Abigail says, hey, I'm sorry. My husband's a moron. Let's work together here. She's just trying to protect the family. And you know what happens to her husband? He gets a heart of stone and dies. And David rides away with his wife. We call that where I come from a likely story. You think that's how he died and David just rides away with his wife? And shortly after that, he takes another wife, and he'll take more wives, and he dies with virgins surrounding him. This is David's story, unfortunately, that he seems to pass on to Solomon. Before that, let's talk about Michal. Let's remember her story for a moment. They say that she began to hate David the day he danced and just let himself go, if you remember that story. But I think it goes back earlier. Michal loved David. She loved David so much so that she defied her father to save David's life. You will remember that when the soldiers came to kill David, she lowers him out the window and puts an idol in the bed and covers it with a sheet like a teenager sneaking out of the house to protect Saul or David from Saul. And when the soldiers come, she lies to her own father to protect this man she loves. And in a great romance story, the would-be king would leave, would blow a kiss and say, I'm coming for you, McCall. 
At least at some point he would ride back into town and take his bride, or he would send a message and say, I'm alive and well, I'm coming for you. But you know what David does? For months, McCall sits there wondering where her lover is, whom she saved, the man that she chose over her own father, and he's gone. And then later on in the story, McCall has moved on and has been given in marriage to another man whose name we'll pronounce as Paltiel. I'm not sure if that's entirely correct. We need Rabbi Wolfie here to help us apparently with those. And now she's caught in a power struggle between the house of David her former lover and husband, who has just left her, and her now dead father. But she's moved on into a marriage that appears to be happy and good, as far as we can tell. And in one of the greatest political power moves I've ever seen, David says, I demand to have my wife McCall back. And if you read the text, it says that her husband has his wife ripped away from him, and he follows along behind, weeping the entire way powerful King David kills his wife. I asked us, how brutal is David really? Of course we know the story of David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba forced into David's room, which is a point that you've heard and you'll hear again. It's important to note, this isn't a romantic, steamy affair. This is a man who has power over a person and says, you will come to me tonight. And we know how this story unfolds as as her husband's away fighting David's battles for him, he takes advantage of her, he impregnates her, and then has her husband killed off. Has him deliver his own hitman note. I ask us again, how brutal is David? Is he really that exemplary of a character? Because when I compare David and Saul, I'm not going to look at my children and say, be like David. In fact, I have three sons, and I'm going to tell all three of my sons, do not grow up to be like David or Saul. I'm going to tell my daughter, never hang around a man like David. These are not good people, if I read it objectively. And so if we come here today planning to roast Saul, that's going to be hard to do. Because when we compare him to David, we don't have anything better to look at. And it's led us to this great question of why David? Why David and not Saul? Why David and not anybody else? Because the truth is, let's just be really honest, David's a scoundrel. You heard the rabbi talk about him yesterday. He's a politician. He works the people to his own advantage. I always thought he just absolutely loved Jonathan, but maybe he used Jonathan because he's the direct heir to Saul. Well, we could read all the David experts and the commentaries, and this is what they'll tell us. Saul operates constantly out of fear. It's true. Do you remember when Saul is called and anointed? Where is he? He's hiding behind the gear. He's scared. He, again, he didn't ask for this. He wasn't campaigning for this. It's just given to him. And so from the beginning, he seems to be hiding out. And he's constantly scared of David, and rightfully so. This man is pretty powerful, it would seem. And so he lives in this fear. When he makes the sacrifices that day, it's not to honor the Lord. It's to keep the people together. It's to keep their confidence, to keep their reverence for him. He's not just trying to do the right thing. And so, sure, we could say that David was brave and Saul was fearful. That's true. It's a good answer. We should talk about that. There's the idea that David has always been in this to please God. Remember what God says about David? He is a man after my own heart. 
And we have these psalms that are full of David's worship and his prayer. If Saul had that, we don't know. Israel never gave it to us. But David has this rich life of prayer, this relationship that appears with God. When he does sin, and the ultimate sin we see with David, with Bathsheba, we have Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart, O God. We know that he's repentant, that he seems to love the Lord. He's in it for the Lord. And both these answers are good. They're worthwhile. We should talk about them. We could say they're correct, but I still wonder if it doesn't get us to the answer of why David. Why do we say Hosanna to the son of David and not Hosanna to Saul? Could it be that that's the wrong question altogether? Maybe the question isn't why David? Because for every why David, we could say why Abel and not Cain? Why the scoundrel Jacob and not Esau? I've always had an affinity for Esau. He was a nice guy. He likes hunting in the outdoors. That's what we do in Alabama. I like Esau. Why Jacob? He's a squirrely character. Why Abraham? Why Joseph among all of his brothers? Why Moses? Why Deborah and not Barak? We can take the question further. Why even Israel? Why not a great nation like Babylon or Egypt or Assyria or Rome? Rome is a powerful nation in the history of the world. Why not Rome? Why Israel? We read the Old Testament and we think Israel is this great nation. And David is this great king, and by some accounts they are, but my understanding is if we look through world history, they're barely a blip on the radar. If it's not for Jesus Christ, we probably don't talk a whole lot about Israel around the world as we do today. And as we explore the question of why David is going to take us on this journey of why any of these other people, why even the nation Saul, and maybe it's because the story isn't really about David. And the story isn't really even about Saul. The story is not even about Israel, though they're the ones writing it. The story is about the God of David. And the God of Saul. And the God of Israel. It's a story of God's unwavering faithfulness to his promise of steadfast love to Israel. It's the story of God's commitment to call this nation, to use them to be a blessing to the world, that through him the word of God will be spread out to the world. And David and Saul and Israel and everybody else plays a part in God's great story and his mission here. And it's really a story about how this God revealed to us in Christ actually works in the world and what his kingdom looks like. And if we were to give any credit to David over Saul today, if we were to just try to answer that question just to give us some closure on the question of why David over Saul, maybe it's that David knew, of course, this is how God works. Of course God would call a little shepherd boy. Of course God would look at David's big brothers and say, don't look at their height. Of course God would bypass all of Jesse's other sons that fit the mold and pick the little ruddy teenage boy out back shepherding sheep. Of course God would use a slingshot to beat a giant and not a sword. Of course God would have called Saul, even though he was scared. Even though he was just out looking for donkeys that day. Saul apparently can't believe that this is how God works. And he's constantly working to secure his future. But David seems to know, of course, this is how God works. And he moves forward with this great confidence. Even after his great failures, he still just assumes God is on his side. He has this arrogance about him that this is how the God of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah works. 
David seemed to know this, and he trusted this, and he seemed to move him forward with this great confidence. And Saul is scared and insecure and always worried. And we know this too, don't we? When God in the flesh comes into the world, when the son of David comes, he comes not to the palaces of Rome, throwing open the doors. He comes not to the seminary halls of Jerusalem. He comes to the city of David. What my friend Mark Love calls a backwater village. It's not exactly the Los Angeles of the ancient world. It makes me think that if God came today, we wouldn't see him looking around in our big cities. God in Christ doesn't come to the perfect family, but to the unwed Jewish teenage mother, mysteriously impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is from Nazareth. What should we say about Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And when God in Christ launches his ministry, it's among exile and captives and the addicted and the broken and the demon-possessed and the average, ordinary tax collectors and sinners. And the God in Christ, the God revealed to us in Christ, who is the Messiah of Israel, therefore he is the king and the Messiah of the world. He comes not wielding a sword, he comes taking swords and beating them to plowshares. He comes not fighting battles with swords, but with shovels. How do you build a kingdom as a gardener king and not a warrior king, we might ask? He doesn't come and defeat the powers of the world and the great powers of Rome with military might. He comes defeating them by letting them kill him. And when God beats the greatest power and principality ever known to humankind, that being sin and death, he does so by dying. Selflessly. How do you defeat death by dying? And if we've been paying attention to Scripture and the activity of God, then we know, of course, this is how God works. We are so enamored in our world by the loud and the bold and the beautiful and the powerful and the rich. Even though the witness of Scripture says otherwise, we keep looking for God and all of the people who are one feet taller than the rest. Who are the richest and the most powerful? And meanwhile, I wonder if God is out there among the least of these, on the edges of our societies, in the small backwater villages, and we keep missing God and God's kingdom because we're looking in all the wrong places. And I know that many of you, like me today, may come here with a bit of anxiety about the world and the church world. We know that churches are shrinking. I get tired of hearing it because it's true, and as a preacher, it gets depressing. But it's just reality. The world's changed. The church is no longer the center of town. We are the bottom of the priority list for most people in a city, even our own church members. If we could just get them on automatic draft, that way the three Sundays a month they're gone, we get paid. Drawing a crowd in 2019 at a church event is a lot harder than it was in 1992, isn't it? The world's changing. Churches are shrinking. And it's easy to be scared and anxious. It's easy to say we need to adopt the power structures of the world. Let's just develop better organizations. Let's read more leadership books. Let's create top-down churches that are structured that are really in ways that are anti-kingdom and gospel. But they might draw a crowd, so let's try it. Or some of you here today, your story is that you feel insignificant. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom who got to break away for the week and come to Malibu, and you wonder, could my life have any impact on the kingdom of God? 
great king. I'm not a political leader. Maybe you're an engineer who just works with mind-numbing spreadsheets every day, and you say, where's the kingdom of God in this world? Maybe you're a real estate agent who closes these really boring deals. Maybe you're an elementary school teacher who's just kind of tired of your children in your class. How could the kingdom of God come in any way in my life? How could I play any part in the kingdom of God? I have no power in this world. And there may be some of you here today who have such jaded past. You've got skeletons in your closet that you think David and Saul look like saints. And you think you're too used and too broken and too far gone to ever play a part in God's story. Or perhaps, if I was to hit a little closer to home to some of you pastors and preachers in the room like myself, maybe there are times that you and your ministry, your background, your education, maybe it starts to feel insignificant. Maybe you even doubt at times your abilities and your call. This is my story, if I'm honest with you today. I have a bachelor's degree in engineering from Clemson University. And I grew up an Alabama fan, so I'm already a little messed up there. But roll tight. <laughs> and you may say, but Ryan, you have an engineering degree. Engineering is really hard, so you must be really smart. I have a civil engineering degree. And any of you who are engineers know that they look at the civil engineers like, Oh, you couldn't pass thermodynamics and chemistry, could you? <laughs> and that's right, I couldn't. So I became a civil engineer. <coughs> do you know what civil engineers do? They design pavement and dirt so that when it rains, water doesn't puddle. This is just glamorous. When you flush your toilet, we design pipes to make sure the sewage leaves the building. Needed, yes. But I did middle school career days, and they're like, what? <laughs> bottom of the total pole engineering and my bachelor's GPA was a whopping 2.8 and I worked hard for that. <laughs> I have taken a semester of Greek and I can read Greek words. I have no idea what they mean. <laughs> I don't know Hebrew and when I have Greek and Hebrew questions I do what all great scholars do. I text friends and Google it. And I finally quit blogging because I decided with my extensive readership, that being my wife and mother, really wanted to know <laughs> what I had to say, they would ask. And if my wife was honest, she's probably read 50% of my blogs. <laughs> my church's YouTube channel probably gets 20 hits a week, and that's the group that missed church that day. I minister at a church that I deeply love, the Hunter Hills Church of Christ in Prattville, Alabama. But there are times when I have to say Prattville, Alabama. Do you know Montgomery? Do you know Birmingham? Do you know the Southeast, the state of Alabama? <laughs> you might find us on the map because you've heard of Montgomery, Alabama. We're just 30 to 40,000 people there in Prattville. I minister at a great church of 300 people on roll. Okay, most weeks are 220, but we're there. And when it rains, which it does every week in Alabama, our roof leaks, literally. It's kind of a game. When it rains, we go around and find a new leak. <laughs> Making budget is really hard at our church. I've never published a book, and I probably won't. I probably wouldn't qualify for a PhD program at any seminary that you would have heard of. And you may say, yeah, but you're speaking at Pepperdine University. You know, one time I landed a job at a church in West Texas because I had a friend that worked there, and I just happened to work with this interim minister named Mike Cope, who you may have heard of. Could be why I'm here today. 
Maybe your story is similar. Maybe you feel like me at times in your ministry. Maybe it's not all that significant. Maybe it's not all that important. Do we really have any play in God's kingdom? And if we look across the world at the seminaries and the big churches, what is this little church in Prattville or name your city? What could we do in God's kingdom? You may wonder, do people even listen to my preaching? And you know they don't, but we ask these questions, and the story of David and Saul says, of course. Of course God uses the preachers in the small towns and the little churches and communities all across this nation. Of course God uses stay-at-home moms with kids playing baseball in their front yard while she's knee-deep in laundry and school lunches. Of course God uses engineers and architects and lawyers and factory workers. David's story reminds us this is precisely the places where God works. It's not among the likely. It's not among the tall and beautiful always and the big and the proud and the bold and the loud. It's teenage shepherd boys out back with a slingshot. It's the unlikely places. And you may wonder, will our church even make it in this post-Christian America that we see coming along? You know, in the deep south, we get it pushed back a little bit further, but we feel that it's coming. Many of us are just one mega church away from our church being shut down. We're just fearful. They're going to move to town and close our doors. Maybe we're not good enough pastors. Maybe our jeans should be skinnier and tighter or glasses cooler. <laughs> Maybe if I was just a foot taller than all the others. Maybe if I had a better organizational plan. What good could my 50, 100, 200 member church do? You may think you're not a mover and shaker in the kingdom of God. You may feel meaningless, but who knows? Maybe your story. Maybe your story is the one that 102 years from now, some young kid from Alabama will stand up and talk about at a lectureship. Like in 1917 in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Soviets come to power, they got to get Christianity that's so deeply tied to the empire, just to use that terminology, they got to get it out of the way. So what do we do? We're going to go find the people with the power and we're going to kill them off. So they kill off the young men. They imprison the rest. And they eradicated Christianity. So they thought, and so it looked like, but they failed to take into account this one group of seemingly insignificant elderly women, the grandmothers, called the babushkas. And the babushkas, with no power, with no clout, they make a little shepherd boy with a slingshot look like a great army. They walk into these dying churches holding their grandbabies, singing songs of faith over them and praying over them. And church historians tell us that the reason that there is Christianity still today in Russia is because of these seemingly insignificant babushkas, grandmothers, like midwives in Egypt who just do their job, who refuse to carry out Pharaoh's commands. They're not grand. They're not powerful. But yet they're the stories that we tell today. The world tells us, overlook these people in these stories. The world says, find the people who are a foot taller. Don't look at the shepherd boy out back. And the world might tell you that your job is useless, that your life is useless, that your ministry is useless, that your church is minor and insignificant, and you may think you're just preaching it to death. But that's not how the kingdom of God works, does it? The nation of Israel and David the king, they're not that big and significant as they like to think they are as they tell their story. 
but it's the one we keep telling. So why David? Why you? Why me? Why any of us? Because the story says that of God, of course, God works in the little shepherd boys. Of course, God works in the Israels of the world, in the backwater villages like Bethlehem's, among the Nazarenes, the midwives, the babushkas, among average, ordinary people like you and me. Let's pray. We give you thanks, O oh God, that you do not need us to be loud and proud and powerful, handsome, beautiful, perfect, or any other adjective the world may want to throw in front of us. But that you, O oh God, can take even the least likely, especially perhaps the least likely, to be a part of your kingdom work. Today, Lord, remind every person in this room that their ministry matters, their work matters, and their lives matter. Take us, Lord, these jars of clay and reveal your treasure to the world for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.